Today, I'm joined by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. He teaches at the University of Colorado Boulder in the Nordic Studies program. He teaches pre-Christian Nordic mythologies, Scandinavian folklore, Nordic memory studies, myth and disaster studies, North Atlantic and Greenlandic literature, reception history of the Viking Age, and neo-paganism. He also has done fascinating research on volcanoes in Norse myth. Dr. Matthias Nordvig, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Noah. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So, Dr. Nordvig, you really uh, have you know done it all. You're quite the expert on many aspects of the Viking Age. But one thing that we haven't really covered in great detail on this show yet are the sagas of the Icelanders and really how we can use them as a source for the Viking Age. So, kind of one question that I always have going through my head when I read the various sagas is, you know, exactly that is, can we use them as a source for the Viking Age? After all, they are sagas, and I know many sagas have some sort of mythological elements which may suggest that they are a form of historical fiction. But I guess just kind of a a big question right off the bat is, how can we use the saga of the Icelanders as a source for the Viking Age? Yeah, so this is an ongoing discussion that has basically been um, uh, fought over by uh, different scholars uh, for at least a century. Um, uh, the, the the discussion has been like raging back and forth uh, uh, on like what what is the historical component uh, in in this literature. Uh, is there any historical uh, component that goes beyond the time of writing, so to speak? So, I mean, most of these uh, sagas were written down in the 13th century and early 14th century, but they talk about uh, the migration period to Iceland, the so-called Landnam period, where uh, different settlers from Scandinavia and British, the British Isles came to Iceland and took land. And that happened in the period 870 uh, to 930, at least according to historical documents. And uh, scholars um, have, uh, among other things, um, suggested that there is an oral narrative background to the saga literature uh, that basically uh, emplaces the origin of them in that migration period. and they argue that uh, different um, narrative components then lived on until the 13th century, where uh, different writers are then, you know, composing this form of literature that is, uh, to some extent, uh, historical narratives and to some extent fiction as well. And if you read any scholarly introduction to a translation of, 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 of any of these sagas, you would find that uh, they first of all place them uh, in a certain time of writing. So it, this saga was written in the early period of the 13th century or in the middle or in the late. Um, and then secondly, they discuss uh, the aspect of uh, fictionality, uh, so to speak. So, so it's a very complex question, actually, whether or not these stories are uh, talking uh, or telling us real things about people in that Viking age of Iceland. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so I, I suppose then how, how does one go about separating fact from fiction? 
when looking at these these sagas. I mean, certainly more of the mythological elements are clearly fiction, but you know what I mean? How does one separate the fact from the fiction and understand something as, as being true and a historical fact? Yeah, so um, first of all, um, I think we should be careful uh, uh, talking about um, historical facts in that regard. Uh, for instance, one thing that scholars have been doing and, and that you can easily do is uh, look at um, a saga about, say, Eid Skaplakrimson, right? He, he's got his saga. It was written in uh, the 1240s, approximately. Yeah. Um, and, um, well, we can then look in uh, the Book of Settlements, uh, um, which is an earlier uh, document that was written approximately uh, uh, 120 years earlier um, than Eil Saga. And we can see, okay, the, there is a historical, at least according to that story, a historical person who took land in Iceland. And his, na- um, his father's name was Grimur, and, uh, um, uh, or Grimur was the father of Eil who took land, and then Eil is also recorded to some extent to have existed, right? So we have the, but that's a small uh, section. It's, a, it's not a very long text that just tells us, oh, these people took land here. And then, of course, we have in the 13th century people who recount their origin from this particular uh, land-taking individual. Um, so that's uh, that's at least some uh, uh, an aspect of the the sagas uh, that could be considered historical facts, but the circumstances um, uh, of this historical fact are very unclear to us. All right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Now, my next question is, obviously, the Vikings, you know, traveled all, all over the world and didn't really stand one place, but um, basically their, their homelands were uh, Scandinavian countries, uh, as well as Iceland, uh, primarily. So was Iceland an exceptional society during the Viking age. It seems like we have so much, so, so many artifacts and and so much literature from Iceland during the Viking age. I mean, just with the, the manuscripts and, and everything else and just, you know, archeological finds. And and it seems like we have so much um, pertaining to Iceland. So why was Iceland, if it was significant, uh, and perhaps more significant than the Scandinavian countries during the Viking Age. Well, so uh, first of all, I'm, I'm going to have to correct you a little bit uh, in terms of Iceland being perhaps more significant. Um, uh, so this is a, a, a this is the way that we perceive it today. Um, Iceland back in the Viking Age uh, would be a new land. Uh, to the Vikings, uh, um, this, the, the the sort of like in, quote unquote important Viking lands uh, would be uh, the the sort of uh, um, well, first of all, uh, the West Norwegian coast and the um, um, the, the Danish area, what comprises uh, Denmark today, and then the uh, eastern Swedish coast primarily. Um, because that's where most of this Viking acti- activity seems to emanate from. Now, Iceland then becomes important later on because we have uh, many people, it seems, going from 
the Scandinavian region, primarily Western Norway, at least according to the literature, and then from the British Isles. And, um, and then these people settle in Iceland and uh, in, in, in the, in, during the 1100s, and especially in the 1200s, they start producing a lot of literature. And it doesn't look like, and this is where Iceland becomes special, so to speak, as a Viking country, because it doesn't look like we have the same type of literary production in Scandinavia. At least we don't have uh, uh, the evidence uh, of it. We have um, those typical uh, historical authors um, um, who write, uh, you know, narratives for the kings and so on. And, of course, we have uh, church literature in Scandinavia. But in Iceland, we have something that looks more, of, uh, more like a, uh, you know, a creative genius to some extent among the population. Different, different individuals who, who are just you know, spewing out uh, literature um, that is uh, not necessarily tied to the church, uh, definitely not written in Latin, which would be the case in Scandinavia for, for a lot of the literature. Uh, it's written in their own language. And so that's what makes Iceland special. Um, and, and of course, that's, that, uh, later on, in, uh, after the medieval period, uh, that's where uh, Scandinavians, uh, for different reasons, um, uh, sort of go to, to uh, investigate their own uh, uh, historical past before the medieval period. Uh, because the Icelanders are writing down material uh, about Denmark and Norway and Sweden too. Um, so that's really what makes them special. And um, a last thing to tie on to that is, of course, that it looks like in the Viking Age, uh, uh, Iceland becomes uh, sort of a, a hub for professional court poets, hmm. um, skulls, right, so who compose this uh, um, uh, great uh, poetry about uh, different uh, Scandinavian kings because they would go there and be employed by these uh, kings to uh, compose what is literally, you know, royal propaganda, right? <laughs> so that's probably the, the core of what generates this literature in the, in later on, this, this creative genius, as I called it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Iceland is a creative genius. So could one liken Iceland to perhaps the new world of the Viking age? I would definitely say so. Um, so, and that's, that's uh, why um, I would say that as a society, uh, Iceland in the Viking age becomes exceptional because what you have is uh, a, 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 this migration from uh, from the mainland Europe or uh, at least mainland Scandinavia uh, to Iceland where it becomes a question of uh, well uh, how do we establish a society how do we uh, figure out these rules among each other and also you have to consider what kind of mentality does it require for an individual to seek out a new land instead of staying in your uh, comfortable uh, surroundings in in Scandinavia, right? Yeah. Um, I would argue, and I believe this is uh, supported by uh, recent studies in behavioral psychology, that um, the the bigger part of of a population that migrates somewhere is typically a little more opportunist. Um, 
a little more independent and uh, fortune seeking in different ways. And so we would we could then expect Iceland uh, as a uh, early society to have more of that kind of people. And so the question then becomes, well, what kind of social dynamic that would that then create? Yeah. Wow. That's very interesting. Now, as far as the saga of the Icelanders are concerned, just a little bit of sort of um, history behind those sagas. So obviously um, it's a you know compilation of many different you know stories, if you will, or sagas. Were they all written by different authors? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, first of all, in, in, in a scholarly context, we would like to say writers rather than authors because okay. authors, uh, that this sort of like implies a, a certain, um, yeah. um, you know, the, 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 the idea of authorship really comes from the 19th century. Um, and, and we shouldn't, uh, first of all, see these stories as, as attached to just, uh, one single person creating them. Um, there might have been somebody who initially wrote them down, but they wrote um, um, stuff down that was inherited from tradition that they created themselves. And then these stories have also been added to by other writers later on. So a lot of these stories that we have in the medieval manuscripts um, have actually been compiled through multiple authorships, if you, if you will. So, uh, so, so that make, makes them more of like a a living tradition in in that society in the medieval period, and um, and uh, and so so when it comes to um, comes to that aspect of how many authors are we dealing with? Can we even name them? Not really. Uh, none of them. Um, uh, there are forty something uh, uh, sag- uh, sagas of Icelanders. Um, available to us, and it is it is very hard to pinpoint exactly uh, who was the first person to write them down. Um, Eighth saga that I mentioned before uh, has been suggested to uh, to have been written by um, the, the sort of like the the big literary genius of uh, the 13th century Iceland, uh, Snorri Sturluson, who's also responsible for having. Uh, written down most of what we know of the Nordic mythology, um, but that is still a, a question that, that 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 authors are also uh, discussing a lot. Um, and I do, I would say that there is no uh, uh, there's no real conclusion to that answer. Yeah, <laughs> we can't we really can't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Now you brought up Snorri Sturluson, and uh, he's a, a fascinating character. So I'll just ask you a question about him before we get more into the sagas. So would you say that Snorri Sturluson could be considered one of those creative geniuses uh, that we see in Iceland? Well, he would have been post-Viking age. And sort of when studying the the um, writings of Snorri Sturluson, uh, especially the Prose Edda, which uh, deals with uh, Norse mythology, what attitude should we take when looking at it um, and trying to decipher the biases? Because he was indeed a medieval Christian. Well, so yeah, so this is this is an interesting. Um, um, so first of all, Snorri's Edda, the Prose Edda, is probably uh, a a, um, a a unique uh, work of literature in medieval Europe. There's there's really nothing to compare it to. Um, 
it is it it is first of all a Christian work um, because you, 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 there's a prologue that that uh, that that tells us that God created uh, the world and everything, and then it begins to explain why are, uh, were there then pagans and 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 all of these things. And Snyder Sturluson obviously adhered to this notion that well, these people uh, uh, mis misunderstood the work of God, so so that's why they became pagan and. Um, worshippers of idols and such. Um, but on the other hand, it is also very obvious that uh, that this uh, work of art uh, includes um, very specific knowledge, uh, traditional, uh, and I would say pre-Christian knowledge as well. So the question really becomes, how does it include that material? Um, and my my... My general uh, idea on that is that uh, a lot of it is actually uh, in included in, in terms of like useful and informative folklore. Um, this um, this type of uh, old stories and old sayings that uh, you would have gotten from your parents about uh, um, how uh, why do you do certain things or why should you do certain things. And the best example I would say in in in, uh, in the prose that is where Snorri Sturluson writes that uh, the ship that is going to carry the uh, the giants uh, um, in Ragnarok is called Nagelfar, and that that means sort of like nail traveler. Um, and the reason for that is because it's built of the nails, the fingernails of dead people. So you should cut your nails, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's, you could almost hear this Icelandic grandmother telling yeah. you this, right? <laughs> Remember to cut your nails because otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of that material has been sort of delivered in that kind of context and then put into this uh, structured frame that Sturluson gives it. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And that's a, a good way of, of looking at it, I think. So now getting back to the saga of the Icelanders, um, throughout these sagas, we see a lot of kind of, you know, self-absorbed and, and just plain old jerks. Uh, but we see this time and time again in the various sagas. So, you know, why is that? And what is the significance that these, these characters add to these sagas? You know, like, because these characters uh, are so, and these personalities are so prevalent in the sagas, is that like is that something that Vikings would have aspired to be like, or is that something that perhaps, uh, when looking at these sagas, we can better understand who the Vikings were themselves? Yeah. So um, uh, to start off, uh, this notion of like understanding who the Vikings were, I would say that they probably give a sense of a particular. Viking culture. Now, uh, this wouldn't be a culture that uh, uh, the majority of the Scandinavian population uh, in that period of time adhered to, but it's probably what uh, uh, what most of the uh, Vikings uh, uh, did uh, subscribe to to some extent. This notion of you know going out and sailing um on a ship raiding uh the coasts and trading here and there and basically uh um bending or uh, simply disbanding any kind of uh rules um uh, in order to uh, become rich 
the the Danish historian uh, who was writing just a little bit before Snorri Sturluson was writing, so basically in the late uh, uh, part of the um, 12th century and possibly in the early uh, 13th century, um, he's he's writing this big work on on the Danish history, and and he has a, a, a like his uh, this particular king who's like a, a Viking king. He has him exclaim that uh, oh to be sailing on the seas and uh, and 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 raiding and pillaging and 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 all of these things is the best thing a man can do. So that I think encapsulates this you know Viking culture. But I think this Viking culture is very exceptional. Uh, um, in in the Viking uh, period, actually, um, and and yeah, this is exactly what we then see expressed in the um, uh, the saga literature, and that would then make the saga literature exceptional, in the sense that um, uh, we then have a very strong focus on a particular type of human, uh, a particular uh, mentality, and. Um, so uh, what I have been doing uh, um, in my recent studies is focusing on uh, the sagas of Icelanders uh, as this exceptional, uh, basically, migrant literature. Um, this comes from uh, having a, um, uh, read some studies on um, um, behavioral psychology among uh, um, uh, migrant societies and what uh, what. Uh, psychologists um, um, have found is actually that uh, uh, um, Western societies compared to East Asian societies are weird, as they call them. And, and weird is an acronym for Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. And um, yeah, so so uh, what Western societies and especially North American societies exhibit is a uh, um, strong uh, emphasis on individualism. Uh, and of course, we know this. This is something that we see all the time, right? Um, but uh, this individualism, and some further studies have been done on on uh, these comparisons between East Asian and Western societies. What, what uh, psychologists uh, have found and um, behavioral scientists have found is that uh, it looks like a lot of this individualism actually comes from this situation of migrating. And there's a curious case. Um, yeah, it's really interesting, actually. There's a curious case in Japan. So uh, Japan is uh, overall a very communal society where people adhere to very um, strict social rules. Uh, but there is one exception, and that's the northern island of Hokkaido, um, uh, where um, researchers have found that uh, um because it was populated, uh, largely was mostly populated in the in the last half of the nineteenth century, as a, um, a sort of a, a move from the Japanese government to to make sure that Russia wouldn't expand in into Hokkaido at the time, um, they sent uh, um, samurai up there, um, gave them land, and made them populate the uh, the island, and that created sort of like a wild west of Japan where uh, Hokkaido actually exhibits much more individualism, much more pride in oneself and, and all of these things that we, we kind of like know from, from typical American society. And, um, and so that has told uh, uh, researchers that, well, migrant societies seem to 
generate more individualism. And if you apply that to the notion of Iceland in, in the Viking Age, well, it kind of looks like it's the same that's happening there. And that's what the saga literature is then dealing with. It's dealing with these hardcore individualists. And if you consider what this uh, theory uh, uh, by Aaron James, who's a philosopher, where he outlines what does it mean to be this person who, who uh, does not care about others. And, and he says, well, uh, it's a combination of um, entitlement, personal entitlement, and, and uh, this notion that you can simply uh, just disregard social rules in, in order to further yourself and, and, and promote yourself and then disenfranchise other in the process. And I think that is what we're seeing in a lot of the sagas, actually, these, these people who, who do that all the time. Um, and, and interesting cases, for instance, uh, again, going back to Scott Lecremson, he... Um, um, he, when he has become old and his son has taken over uh, um, uh, the farm and, and everything, the neighbor um, uh, lets his cattle graze on uh, what is basically Egil's son's property. And uh, then Egil's son kills the two slaves that are uh, handling the cattle. And, um, and this, this creates a strife where the neighbor then uh, demands that he pays for that. And they take it to court, and Eid then says, well, it was my uh, father who took land and then gave some of that land to, uh, uh, to you guys over there. So um, I don't really care about your grief in this regard. Um, um, and then he um, basically um, rules that the neighbor is going to be an outlaw. And so what we see in this regard is, is this man who feels entitled enough to completely disregard the, uh, the, uh, whatever grief that might be uh, associated in, in the, uh, this context from the uh, um, disenfranchised part and, uh, and just basically say, well, now you're an outlaw and anybody can kill you, and you can, uh, if you don't you know, leave immediately. And um, the father of the, uh, the neighbor who, who did this um, then says that, it says to A, I think we can all agree that this was an unjust ruling. Um, so uh, scholars have said, well, in this honor-based society that existed in Iceland at the time, um, this seems to be a perfectly normal thing to do. And it might have been. But I would then uh, say that, well, uh, it's still, especially based on the reaction of, of the aggrieved part, uh, um, uh, saying that, well, we can all agree that this was an unjust ruling. There's some indication that people had other social standards, that there is actually a situation where uh, people would be expecting more, uh, you know, uh, an outcome that was sort of more communally focused. Um, a situation where people would uh, uh, would seek to not completely disenfranchise the other part, but some, seek some sort of like agreement that everybody could be happy with. Um, and you know, we see so many cases of that in the saga literature. Wow. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. My last question that I'll ask you is, um, 
trying to think of how best to phrase this, but um, that you know, you mentioned the research that's been done um, and how we can see individualism as a product of migration. That's absolutely fascinating, um, especially when you mentioned you know the samurai and the island of Japan and, and everything else. I don't know if it's even possible to say, but you know, understanding who the Vikings were. Did the Vikings embrace more of a collective, um, collectivism, um, way of living in that, um, you know, life was very much centered around, I don't know, the tribe, the community, um, or did, or were they, were they more individualistic, uh, in the sense that you mentioned before? So if we look at the social structures that have been in place in Scandinavia and to some extent also Iceland, um, for as long as we know. These places, uh, Scandinavia is a very communal uh, society. Um, it, it's small societies where everybody knows each other and there are very specific rules for engaging each other in different ways. If you're a foreigner, there are very specific rules for how you act or how you're perceived and such things. A good example is um, the Norwegian shielding practice where you have a, a local village and that would then gather all the cows and and and, and other animals, and and then in the summertime, uh, they would have um, a communal prices where uh, a couple of individuals from the village would take care of all of these cows up in um, the um, you know higher reaches of the mountains where there would be grass. Um, uh, that's a very communal practice, and uh, and then they would, uh, you know, it requires a lot of trust to let uh, somebody else handle your property and and you know the the animals that feed you, right? And it also requires a lot of trust to then say, well, uh, once these animals uh, come back, we are capable of separating them into uh, our, our uh, personal property uh, and. And I get my cows and you get your cows without anybody stealing any uh, of these animals. Um, and uh, if we look at Iceland, uh, these social structures have also been in place. Um, first of all, uh, the, um, uh, the, the General Assembly of Iceland that was established around nine, 930 uh, is a, a directly... Uh, uh, taken from the Scandinavian um, uh, context, um, so that's a that's a uh, structural um, system that is put in place in Iceland, um, uh, inherited from Scandinavia. This is where we go to the General Assembly and, dis- and decide um, laws and settle our disputes. Um, so that's that's a very old tribal function of uh, Scandinavian society. It looks like it uh, goes back to some, uh, at least uh, from the Viking age, back at least a thousand years. Um, and and uh, the Icelanders also have been practicing uh, the shielding uh, uh, culture where they would take sheep and uh, into the mountains and have a sheep herder and then bring them down and then separate them into uh, different people's property. So, so in that regard, it actually looks like uh, there's a lot of communalism in, in both Scandinavia and Iceland. But um, aside from that, you didn't have a, a, a prominence of, of these uh, individuals who uh, consistently take matters into their own hand and uh, consistently do not uh, respect uh, 
these basic social rules of engagement um, and say, well, it is my law <laughs> or my rules that apply, not whatever is good for the uh, for the community. It's, it is what I demand, so to speak. <laughs> um, and and I think that comes uh, directly from from the Viking culture. Um, this um, the situation of Scandinavians going raiding, especially in the British Isles, then amassing enough wealth in the British Isles to then, uh, uh, you know, retire in, in Iceland uh, where you can take some property and, and, and live a, a decent life. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's a, I think what happens in, in the Viking Age is simply that uh, too many of these kinds of opportunists go there and then they become, you know, rulers because they are capable of uh, uh, sort of bending social rules to an extent where where they, um, you know, end up uh, in the top of society. And I think we've seen this in uh, in in many contexts in uh, in in North American culture too. I, I would actually compare the sagas of Icelanders to. Uh, you know those Western fictions and dime novels and penny dreadfuls uh, from the late nineteenth uh, uh, century and early twentieth century, where you know the typical Jesse James and and Billy the Kid stories. You have a local community somewhere out on the prairie, and then it's menaced by some um, some lone rider, and you have a sheriff that needs to uh, address the situation and all of that. It's constantly a story about how do we actually manage to generate a communal society and what grounds is this communal society going to exist and i think we see the same thing in the the saga fascinating no that's an excellent comparison and an excellent way of looking at it Uh, dr matthias nordvig i've uh, absolutely enjoyed our discussion today thank you so much for coming on the show uh it's i've learned a lot and it's really um just expanded my my way of looking at the the saga of the icelanders so Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're certainly welcome back anytime. Thank you very much for having me. This was very much a pleasure.